This week, uh, joined once again by filmmaker Kyle Smith, but also new revolving guest host, Rahman Nazir Ali, a uh, great film editor, a uh, great friend. Um, hopefully, this will be the first of many episodes with him on there. Um, we're going to be discussing that uh, eternally great Christmas movie, Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, it has a lot of Christmas lights in it, so it has that going for it. Uh, but real briefly, what I watched this week, there's... Um, Inside my pandemic bubble, is my dad and my stepmom are included in there, and they come over. We haven't been doing it much lately because of the holidays, but usually like once every two weeks, they'll come over, and I've uh, extolled the virtues of the Watch TCM app on here before, and I try to keep a big watch list of things that I might potentially be able to watch if I get the time, because what will happen is my stepmom, being one of the only other people in the family, who likes movies released before she was born, but also likes movies in black and white. Uh, mainly she picks it. My dad usually just uses veto power on it. And so we watched another Christmas movie this week, uh, Christmas in Connecticut, a screwball comedy from 1945, I think, with Barbara Stanwyck and Sidney Greenstreet in it. Um, it's Barbara Stanwyck the same year as Double Indemnity, so there's that. Uh, I always noted this movie... I, I thought it had some Preston Sturges uh, background rewrite or something. I, I don't think it did. I mistakenly did that. But I always noted this as one of Arnold, Sch the remake of this was one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's only two directed credits. He did an episode of Tales from Crib, and I want to say it was a TNT made for uh, made for TNT movie. Um, but TCM was a kind of a hole this year during uh, the pandemic just because there was a comfort level of watching stuff on there just because it wasn't this year. Yeah, I, I was watching a lot of old movies where it just seemed like society made more sense. The world was more organized. Adults were in charge. And um, I read a lot more history that way too. Um, and I, I've been little doom and gloom not so much on here uh, except on the articles I've been posting on our, on our Facebook page about the future of the film industry and I think it should be clear I am optimistic I don't know what the future of the feature film format is going to be in theaters I don't know exactly how the collective uh, activity of going to see a movie and enjoying a movie together, it's clearly one of the things all human beings, not just myself, really hold dear, with few exceptions. There are exceptions, but um, th we're still going to be seeing movies. Every question I have is not about the artistic process or the needs for human beings to, to want to tell stories and want to hear stories. It is the most fundamental. It's the way our brains work. 
um, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, how we tell stories is a part of is is baked in our DNA because it's how we attract mates. It's it's just it's we're always trying to figure out stories to tell each other about our experiences and figure out value. And in that regard, with the term value, we get to my only worry, which is the economics and the market. And personally, I, from a economic standpoint and a employment standpoint, had a pretty shitty 2020. And I don't know how 2021 is going to go in that regard. And I think I am not an isolated case. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, but all that being said, I still believe very strongly in everything I said, non-economically. We, our stories are going to get better. Our stories are going to get more sophisticated. Our stories are going to be more true. And the best format to tell these stories, as much economic value needed to tell these stories, is still film, is still an audiovisual format. So I don't know what that means for us being distracted and watching shit on our phones, uh, being uh, having Silicon Valley just poke at our brain or uh, lizard brains, or if that means that the 22-hour Great American streaming series that's going to unite red and blue states is on the horizon. I, I just, I know that w once we're all allowed to be back together, people are still going to make good art. And I just, I didn't want to go out this year on a negative note. I want to go out on a, ma make sure that it's clear that I firmly believe in the positivity of the stories that we're going to be telling. So, if you're listening to this and you make film or you want to learn more about making film or you just want to discuss making film, I do think better days are ahead. And on that note, let's discuss Eyes Wide Shut. I watched the movie today, which I might bring up. I might I might bring this movie up later. Uh, I, I watched, saw you on your letterbox. You mentioned it. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Ju uh, Judex, the Georges Franju movie, and I have no clue what this is. I just saw you mention an Eyes Wide Shut connection. In it, it. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a movie that's based on um, the French filmmaker Louis. I'm not gonna say his name right. Like Fouillade, Fouillade. I don't know this guy. The guy. This guy in the 19 teens made three like six hour serial films. The most famous is called like Les Vampires or like the vampires. And it is the inspiration okay. for Irma Vep, the Aseas movie. Um, okay. And so you've, you've seen images. You had what, what's that? You had the mention of the three movies. Yeah. Yeah. So like in Irma Vep, they're like, they're, it's all these like women in cat in, in the original silent film. It's all these women in cat suits who are like, st like stealing things. I have not seen the silent film. But I remark in my review because I was thinking about the pandemic, how at the beginning there was this energy of like, 
oh, now we're like cooped up and I'm going to like watch those things I always wanted to see. And I'm going to read that, you know, those big books that have been sitting on my shelf for years. And watching yeah. this film today, I was like, oh, now would be the great time to like watch these six hour silent movies. But nine months in, I'm so exhausted that I don't really want to <laughs> like do that. For um, next week's episode, I'm starting to line up the uh, end of the year stuff. And it's kind of demoralizing just because like with the diminished quality, the end of the year stuff is just like more of a chore. All right. Um, I wanted to start out for you guys. Uh, so uh, Kubrick being a thing for me, like I have a bunch of books to go to from this. And um, there's this cool book uh, from uh, – oh, shit, where was it? Um, I'm starting out strong. Michael Benson wrote this book called Space Odyssey that just came out two years ago. That is one of the, def for me, the definitive thing on 2001. And he tells a story in the mid-60s of um, Kubrick, right when he's first starting to get uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, engaged in the screenplay, being based out of New York, he goes to visit Joseph Heller, the writer of Catch-22, who's a big admirer of Dr. Strangelove. And they talk to each other. Uh, and Kubrick records the conversation. And the quote that is from the book that I, I pulled out was um, Kubrick says to Heller, uh, the film form and its ability to generate a lot of emotions, that's what you might call the non-plot story or the anti-plot film. Once they get under your skin, you're vibrated by the subtlest kind of vibration. It works especially in films, but it works in books too. And this is Kubrick in 64. And I feel like every movie he made after that point was a had a certain level of hip, hip, was hypnotic and may have been like very thin on plot or very thin on on purpose not doing much so it re at my last watching of eyes wide shut it really felt felt that like it was like there's not much going on in this movie but it's very Kubrick movies are hypnotic and you're going to watch whatever he does yeah i, I think that's absolutely true and a thing that was on my mind watching this movie again was uh, how, how, um, okay. So in another scale of things, when he gives that quote, 1964, Kubrick has made what, four or five movies in about an eight year period. Yeah. His pace was off. He, he, his pace is, ended up being. and it's very high quality films he's making. And then there is this, seven year gap between the shining and eyes wide shut or uh, full metal jacket. And then there's a 12 year gap between full metal jacket and eyes wide shut. And then this is the last film he makes. So for me, there was like a, the, the distance of, of, um, of, of how long he marinated on this project carries with it. Like this, when you watch eyes wide shut and when you, I saw it in theaters when it came out like opening weekend and being like, Whoa, this is the man's final words. You know, this is the, this is this yeah. guy who was so obsessive and then he made this movie. And I think when I saw it at the time and I was 15, I didn't um, understand a lot of what was going on. Or It also felt like kind of like slapdash and a little, I think, in a way lazy to me. And then watching it again, um, I've, I've seen it a couple times since then. And each time fell more under the spell. And then watching the other night, I was completely hypnotized by it. And wondering if like the distance I now had from the movie plus my – the age I've attained at that time, as well as the life experience makes it more well, that way. You know, let's go ahead. Uh, let's, Raymond, start with you. Uh, when did you first see this movie? 
Um, I probably saw it uh, pretty soon after I saw my first Kubrick movie, which would have been in high school, and that was A Clockwork Orange. And uh, 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 I loved Clockwork Orange in high what, school. What was the time frame, frame of this? Uh, between Clockwork Orange and – oh, so high school, uh, probably 2004, 2003, 2005, somewhere around there. Okay. Is when I saw the first movie, my okay. first Kubrick film, which was that. And it's still my favorite probably because – of its sort of like connection that I have. But this was a time where uh, I would just, that's when I really started watching movies. And that was one of the first ones that really kind of sure. got me away from, um, you know, just what you saw at the multiplex, I guess. And then, so that was the most recent one. So I think that's how I got, I got eyes wide shut. And I will definitely confess, I thought it was interesting. I remember my thoughts at that time were it's interesting and different because I didn't have like the idea of what it was and i don't think i very much very i liked it very much because for me uh, um at that time it uh clockwork orange was just so well just so visceral comparing and, that to clockwork orange like yeah. just on a violent sex level uh, yeah. alone or a you know the sort of transgressive you, nature of 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 uh yeah clockwork orange really got me this one was interesting transgressive for, for me it's like the nudity and how it felt the nudity in this movie and it kind of felt quote-unquote refined they're, thought, they're, like, they're, they're connected, though, in the fact that these are the most sexual Kubrick movies, though. Yeah. And, and these are the movies that touched ways. up against the, the X or NC-17 rating. Too. The, these two, and I would throw Lolita in there as well. Well, it's, well I, I wouldn't because it's, Lolita's so tame. Lolita is so verbal and, like, jokey and punny and uh, literate, but, like, it was ham, hamstrung by the time, so it doesn't feel like a... Sec, it, it, I say this, Lolita is one of the weakest Kubrick movies for me, and, and I keep coming back to it. I keep, I, I literally rewatched Lolita this year after finally, I read like the first half of Lolita in high school, never finished it, and I read it this year, finally finished it, and watched the movie after reading it, and still, every time, it's one of those movies I keep coming back to, I want to like it, I want to understand it more, and it still is the weakest Kubrick movie. Uh, I, I think that I think that might hold up, but I I, I remember feeling maybe it's because I similar to you I read the book and then I watched the movie the last time I watched it and I probably carried with me some of the book stuff into the film. I think but carrying the book helps the movie. It does, it does. But I think I'm that's why I'm thinking of it as sexy. I mean, I'm not going to argue that it's more sexy or sex driven than the two films we're discussing, but I just wanted to throw it in the conversation. I don't think the uh, Adrian Lyon version is that bad from what I remember too. Mm. No, it's not. With it's an Angelica Houston, I think, is in it. Um, oh, I haven't seen that. It's Jer it's Jeremy Irons and um, Dominique Swan. And, yeah. Um, well, so Kyle, what was your first viewing of this? You said it was it was and you watched it opening weekend. Yeah. So I'm I'm third. I'm, I'll be 37 next week. So I'm maybe a little older than you guys. And I not knew, me, Kyle. Not, not you. Me. <laughs> um, I knew Kubrick uh, at that point. I'd probably seen. I'd probably seen about half of his films. Um, and I was that was the year I got into movies. That 1999 is all these great films come out. But that's, got, That was the year you got into movies. You picked a, a good year to get into movies. Well, I think 98 actually is when I got into movies. So it was like I was fully prepared for, for what 99 had to offer. And yeah, I went and saw this at the multiplex down the street from my parents' house and in Missouri. Uh, I was looking this up. This opened at number one. The box office made $21 million. It unseated American Pie. So American Pie <laughs> was number one the week before, and then this was number one the week after, um, which there's some some 
think piece you've written about that, but also no, I no, think. No, I, I, I it, okay. So my story is I was working at the theater, and this was the first few weeks that I had gotten promoted to projectionist. And uh, so I was there when American Pie had opened. I want to say that was my, it was my second summer working in the theater and Eyes Wide Shut. Okay, so uh, in the 35 days uh, in the multiplex era, they used a, what's called a platform system where they would, take the re they would send you the reels and you would tape the reels together and you would put on these flat discs, these platform discs. And so you basically only had to thread the film once to run it through and it wouldn't collect on another disc. They'd have three discs on top of each other. And whenever you would say you'd have your biggest theater, you'd open your movie that's going to open at number one in your biggest theater, and over the course of the run, you'd go to smaller and smaller theaters, you'd have to move the movie. And you wouldn't want to like tear it down that way. So what you would do is you'd have different ways of moving it. What And this is the first movie I moved. And what you do is you'd have this like donut that you'd slide the print under. And the print's like about 60 pounds. And over the course of my projectionist career, I dropped a print five times. And every time it's about a six to 12 hour thing of fixing the drop print just because wow. it's, it's, I mean, it's a spindle of, of, you know, days worth of film or not days worth of film, but you know, thousands and thousands of feet of film that will get tangled up and then you have to put together again. And that was the first eyes wide shut was the first movie I moved <laughs> from. I remember moving it from downstairs to, up, to, to upstairs and it was a big deal. I, I, I saw, I saw it the Saturday it came out. I didn't see it Friday night. I saw it the Saturday it came out. I remember for me, it was, it was, I mean, I was, I was obsessive leading up to it. I remember the teaser premiering, uh, like four months after the Phantom Menace teaser premiered on um, uh, uh, Entertainment Tonight. And there's a, there's a disconnect between the Phantom Menace t trailer and the Eyes Wide Shut one, which is it's like six shots and title cards. And the, but at the same time, you think Kubrick's a genius. This is the guy that came up with the uh, trailer for Dr. Strangelove. Like, he knows how to sell a movie. And, and then you get this guy like, no, nah, he doesn't understand the culture anymore. But... What, and he he died he died he died that year right he dies early 1999. Yeah, and he died um, in March. We'll get into this later, but he died. Um, he had sent his editor to show Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and the two main um, uh, WB or Warner Brothers executives, um, uh, Terry Semmel and uh, oh the big one that had been through the 70s that would, had always been his uh, angel uh, executive i can't remember his name and he died just a few days later which we'll, we'll go into that later but yeah he died in like before he had finished the mix basically they mm -hmm. still had looping too and some um, of the, the the voiceover wasn't done right like uh for the 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 orgy scene well, the, there was there was the, i i don't ever have any specifics a mention of what wasn't done I remember what, do, Kate Blanchett's voice is the 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 main woman, or at some point I have was heard be, that. I have heard that. Yeah, and uh, uh, that was done after he passed away, and apparently Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are the ones that suggested her. I well, there's there's a lot. Of, have you guys seen the documentary with uh, Leon Vitale, film worker? No, not there's yet. There's a lot in there about um, he was already a trusted guy of Kubrick, and Kubrick weirdly wasn't highly technical in the post-production process. Like he mixed every movie except 2001, I think is only um, in mono and 2001 is only in stereo. 
And Vitali was his go-to when it came to coloring. So he was the guy that oversaw, he knew what Kubrick wanted, and he would oversee the prints after Kubrick would dictate what he wanted it to color like. So, where where does this movie rank for you guys now in Kubrick's movie, in filmography? It's funny because right after I watched it, I was asking that to myself because this viewing was definitely the the best it's ever felt to me too. How and I also have you seen it now. Um, this is probably my fourth fourth time. So you've given yeah. you all three of us have really given this movie the uh, um, yeoman's effort. By this is yeah. this is my I think fourth or maybe fifth, but I think it's definitely my fourth time seeing it. It's okay. yeah, and it's been a while since the last one, and I think. Um, well, what's interesting is that I, I, when I first watched it, someone told me it's about it's a movie about a marriage, right? Is that kind right. of how I was told? And I didn't feel it then. Uh, it didn't feel like it was really about a marriage. I think a marriage was involved. And uh, uh, and every time I've kind of tried to approach it from that point of view. And it still to this day does not feel it's really about a marriage. A marriage is involved, right? Really? Uh, yeah, why, to me. Why is that? Yeah. I, it, it just it, it more feels like it doesn't have to be specifically a marriage. It's just the sort of like facades and relationships between people. These two happen to be married. Right. OK. But uh, um, but and I think I've always felt that because for all view, all viewings, except this one, it's been a while since my last one. I haven't I was I've never really in a relationship like a romantic one for an extended period of time. This is the first time that I've watched it since I've had a long-term relationship and this right? changed things it did i still don't think it's necessarily about the marriage and i think that's from the the first part but i think this the sort of interactions between uh, uh um nicole kidman and tom cruise in the movie were completely different to me than they were in the past three viewings and especially do you feel the same? kyle yeah. do you feel the same oh yeah yeah um I watched this with my long-term partner and felt things I had never felt before. Again, being a film nut and seeing this at 15 and being like, whoa, there's, we could talk about this too, maybe later when, uh, I have some questions about the projection of the film, but Raymond, you probably know this when the film came out, they put these digital, um, bodies in front of the orgy, you know? Uh, yeah. so I, by the I way, this viewing, this viewing I had was the first time I saw it without those. Oh, really? Yeah, I've had the European Blu-ray, and like I've never, I, I, I feel like I've watched it before, but I, I don't know what happened to my old glorious full-frame DVD. But um, yeah, yeah, we there's gotta be a whole section later about aspect ratios. But um, <laughs> I, I felt like this time I watched it again about five or six years ago. I got the I got the Kubrick um, uh, Warner Brothers box set, which is every film except for Paths of Glory and The Killing, that he and and Fear and Desire. So it's every film he made. Um, starting with the... Uh, it has Spartacus in it too? It has Spartacus, yeah. It has Spartacus okay, in it. Cool. Um, so it's all on Blu-ray. So I watched that when I got it about five or six years ago and then watched it again t- uh, with, with my with my partner. And um, I was, uh, you know, I am the age that Tom Cruise is in the film, like when he makes the film. Holy shit. Uh, he's 37, Jesus. I think, when he, when he makes because that Because that's kind of blows my mind because we both saw this as teenagers. Yeah, so he, he is now the age I am. And, 
sorry, this, this isn't, isn't all that interesting to the normal uh, listener, but I think what the movie is, is complex enough is that it, 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 it puts you, it asks that of you, like, how are you feeling about what's going on in this film? I always thought this way about like, um, I'm not a huge Fellini fan, but I had a formative purse in my life. Somebody had eight and a half was a movie that will change every five years. If you watch eight and a half, every five years of your life, it'll be a different movie. Okay. And, uh, and you know, it's hard to understand what the effort is that makes a movie that way, but Eyes Wide Shut felt that way to me. It was like, oh, he's going through these issues of jealousy. And like, I feel in many ways, like in my life, I've moved past these questions of jealousy. Um, but I have experienced them before and I know what they are. And I definitely know Tom Cruise's like search for an adventure and for something new and, you know, just for a spark. And I also know the feeling he's having, which so much in the film is about, of being not part of something, you know, being a successful doctor, but not being allowed into the parts of society that he wishes to uh, be in. And like, is that a universal feeling? I don't know. Oh, I, I mean, that's not something I feel about. I mean, especially in the pandemic, I felt that very little because there's no oh, places shit, I yeah, want to be. Right now. Yeah. But, but no, like, who's doing orgies right now? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm Zoom sure someone, so, someone is doing. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I agree with Raymond. Like it, it, uh, I, I was really, um, I felt emotionally, I, I think Kubrick's not someone I think of as an emotional film. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. He's mm, not someone no, I think no, no. Yeah. Like, they there's there's the really cool I don't remember if it's in the Kubrick documentary or on the DVD of this but there's that great defense Spielberg gives of Kubrick as an emotional filmmaker because you know people always say Kubrick's cold cold and yeah. Kubrick or Spielberg immediately demonstrates well take the ends of paths of glory which is the scene which Kubrick met his wife which this movie is pretty much dedicated to much less about so this is definitely his most emotional to me most about people like really digging into like their, their the feelings and uh, um, sort of m- maybe mental states, but emotional mental states the most out of anything I've seen. The, uh, the, the others feel more psychological or like sort of like they're like, you know, you're you're there's a subject and you're, you know, trying to get the information out of. And this one is more like you kind of feel what they're feeling. One one thing this viewing really hit me is the and I, well, okay this did hit me the very first viewing from the because eyes wide shut my first viewing I remember thinking I, I, the expectation was pretty strong and it didn't feel that um, edgy of a Kubrick movie until the last line which I think the last line itself was in, is the only like is in addition to the the actual the the dream novel story that it was that it was adapted from but i do from the very first screen the one sequence that i still think is like the best dramatic dialogue scene if not since pass of glory but of a, kubrick's entire career is the uh bedroom argument at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. the stoned bedroom argument because the thing is like kubrick's done some great dialogue scenes but they're always funny or they have this edge of irony or people say absurd things but to have a dialogue scene that uh edgy or that just like um sharp and prickly like it, it, it's it, it is the thing that sets the whole story going too yeah it's, uh does, does that remind every time i saw see that it makes me think of persona really the, okay okay oh, okay I can see that the stage yeah, yeah with B.B. Anderson telling the story about the to Liv Ullman. 
And it's funny because like so much of in Persona, it's played on Liv Ullman's face. And I think that like, I mean, it's, it's, it, that scene in Persona is probably one of the the most erotic things in a film I've ever seen. Like okay. uh, even more so than seeing something, and yeah, uh, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, and uh, uh, so in that scene, I, I I agree with you. I think it it definitely sets off the movie, and it's it's very different from like it's such a an intimate moment between two people. And uh, uh, but I just one thing I always wish about it, uh, when I watch that scene is I wish there was more on Tom Cruise. There well. We, there's some there, there's yeah. a certain level of artificiality that's always been with Kubrick that or an artifice that's supposed to be methodical and like hypnotic but you could also say is just rote acting but because what always offsets that to me though and I was going to point this out to you and I want to ask you guys about this is for Kubrick being such a giant perfectionist the one shot in that scene that always is the scene you, you clear like the perfectionist had to keep is that scene where um, he has the cheesy line where he's like, I believe in you. And they cut to her laughing and she doubles over twice. And the second time they're clearly not anticipating it. So the camera has to dip down again and it is not a smooth move. It is a very jerky move, mm-hmm. but you, you clear that that scene is so edgy and prickly that they were like, they had to keep that shot in that one take. They had to keep in. Yeah, it almost feels like I, I I don't know if it was, but I almost felt like there was a little bit of a zoom in it or something. Like I don't know if they were on a zoom lens, but it kind of felt like that. That yeah. The, well, the, it's so sharp. It's so yeah. it, it's so. I I in that um, space odyssey book, um, there's this description of when the the uh, the shot of the uh, bone in two thousand one, whenever it cuts to the satellite, mm-hmm. uh, all the cameraman Kubrick had on set. The how close they were and throwing the bow in the air, no one could get the shot until finally Kubrick took the camera and he was the only one that got the shot. He ended up it's two shots in the movie, but he was the one that got the shot in there. It's it's interesting to hear you guys. I'm so, I'm sorry. Both both of you as as professional editors talk about that that sequence, which which obviously reflects some of our former bosses' work in some regard. Um, in, in terms of what you like, Raymond, I, I, I just I just loved hearing you just say like I wanted more of Tom Cruise because you said that I'm like oh I didn't even think that I was so into the like the feeling and, and the and, and that shot's very alive on Nicole Kidman and my sort of larger take on the movie is that I think that opening sets you up for I think I think of this as a looser Kubrick like. It's almost like his mumblecore movie in some regard. Yeah, no, like no. I, I totally see. It. I totally see it. But but there's a construct going on throughout the rest of the movie that is deeply felt throughout the production design, the shot selection, the editing, the casting. Uh, this movie is as put together as Clockwork Orange or The Shining or any of his like, you know, clockwork masterpieces. But because of this emotional content at the beginning of the film and a little bit at the end, um, mostly from Kidman. I think because it's she's barely in the movie when you break it down. She's only in about yeah, but she's still the movie's MVP too. Yes, yeah. com- completely. Um, uh, so I I like love that sequence, but I, I loved hearing you just say like I wanted Tom Cruise. It was like, it was like an editorial comment that I, I hadn't heard in a while, in a long time. And... One cool thing I find about um, watching this movie now as opposed to watching this in '99 was the big deal was this was the longest Kubrick had spent on a movie. Everyone was waiting for the next Kubrick movie. They waited so long for this Kubrick movie. Kubrick died, and at the same time, when you see this movie, you're underwhelmed because it's a very simple movie. Like. 
Mm-hmm. I, a few years ago, I had a, a mutual friend we used to work with complain about TV lighting in the movie, the blue lighting, uh, mainly on the exteriors in this, but it was, and I didn't disagree with them. I just thought it was irrelevant, but this movie is so, well, okay. One of the fascinating things I wanted to bring up to you guys is um, the apartment that they're in in New York. I can't remember where I heard this from, but apparently uh, people who knew Kubrick and his wife, Christiane in the sixties, and our children say that the apartment is designed from their actual apartment that they had on, it was like Lexington and 84th on the East side in Manhattan. And, um, this is the apartment they were living in before yeah. Kubrick finally gave up on America and moved, moved to England. Um, the, the paintings on the wall are Christiane's paintings. She's, she was a p- accomplished painter and they they are actually in the movie. So, that adds into the the personal nature of the movie, uh, the emotional nature of the movie. Like this movie does feel like a guy at the end of his life from a happy marriage who probably had a lot of sexual opportunity being like looking back on what my marriage means too and how like, ha- like do you I think mean, the movie's it, hopeful? About marriage or what? Marriage or just in general. Do you think it's a, uh, uh, in the Kubrick, in the Kubrickian fashion, because the last line is so like, what is it? What does it make a marriage last? It's one word, you know. Yeah. And also, uh, we should be grateful for uh, uh, the uh, dreams and uh, or, or our adventures. Real. Yeah, because or... the whole the whole movie is about your 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 sexual identity is going to uh, go on whether you wanted to or not. Whether you um you uh, a, a beautiful actress you work with comes by you or you go to sleep and you dream these, these it's gonna keep going there's a quote Kubrick has about the movie where uh, the, when they were first writing it they were talking about how much of the movie is going to be a dream or not and Kubrick flat out says if there's no reality there's no movie so I put this to your big film brains. Where is the dream in the movie? When does it start? Is it that literal or is it not literal? Is it something that comes and goes? I I, I don't think most of what he experienced. I don't think it's literal. I don't think there, I don't think there's like a clear line. This is in a dream and this part isn't. It's all absurd and surreal, and it gets more and more until he gets until he gets to the. To the to the ritual, and uh, um, and I think the is movie the ritual literal or yeah uh, well well I, I think it's I I don't think it's really meant like I, I don't think you can really say definitively one way or the other because I th- I think I maybe a couple of watches ago th- there's that theory that everything after the Nicole Kidman scene is a dream. But there's yeah, plenty of I mean, evidence I, otherwise. I kind of vaguely thought even the stoned itself, like before the start of it was. But I mean, I also think that a literal interpretation isn't going to serve anybody too. So which, it, which I find what you're saying interesting. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, uh, so in this, this may be because this thing is written in v, uh, the book, uh, the dream novel was written in 1926 uh, uh, Vienna, right? So that's right. very like, uh, you can get a lot of like the sort of subconscious uh, 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 elements to it. So I think like it is absolutely probably things that happened. Maybe the way we're seeing them is more a, a slow dive into his subconscious because his encounters progressively get more and more absurd and surreal, 
right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I think like it's it, it's probably everything that happened, but maybe the way we're seeing it is a subconscious. His subconscious is like retelling of it to himself, maybe. But I don't think anything that happens is is entirely in his head. And I think the line between it is very intentionally blurred. Like okay. Very yeah. much, very intense. Yeah. And I think because like his wife gets a dream, an actual dream, right? That he end. witnesses. Yeah. And yeah. he keeps coming back to and seeing mm-hmm. the dream over and over. And, and there's the weirdness of like the fight happens. She provokes him, picks a fight and then he has to go. And then she comes back or he comes back and um, she has another dream that's a very provocative dream to tell him about to make him not in a good state. And from a relationship standpoint, it's not the best way of handling things like two picking up fights in a row within in the chronology, supposedly of the movie within like what, six hours, five hours of each other. Uh, yeah, I, that's true. That's when he comes back the first night. I, I, I agree with you, Raymond. I, I, I am sort of, and I didn't share this with you, Raymond, so I apologize, but I am sort of hopelessly lost in this um, document, I, I guess website document that I sent Shane that is an examination of, this, of the this films. This is fascinating too, by the way. The film's New York locations. And you, there's a way to go into deep detail, and I'll send it to you, or we'll post it in the link, whatever. Um, but basically, you know, this is all, I'd never realized even as a filmmaker or as someone who who pretends to know about movies, I don't think I ever quite caught that this is all shot on sets. I think if I had watched it now, I might have caught that it was on sets um, because I know New York a little more and I could sort of see the way it is. But there's a phoniness to all of the exteriors in the movie that are presented and sort of a, 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 a real... I remember that was a Scorsese critique at the time. And it wasn't a critique. He was more a defense. He was defending everyone else's critique. I could see... Yeah, and I, again, I just didn't... I couldn't see that in 1989. I think the familiarity with New York, because I, I, I was nowhere near New York at the time. Well, and, and he tricks you, because he does use real exteriors of New York, and then he cuts... Oh, he, yeah. he does a He does a classic movie trick, and then he cuts in. But but a lot of the, the gist of this document, this webpage, is showing how... Um, the locations are physically changing and like the businesses he frequents, like which he weirdly goes to a lot of places. There's the cleaner, there's the costume shop, there's these bars, there's the coffee shop. They're sort of changing on the same like T intersection in Pinewood Studios. And I think that um, that that like element of the movie also made it feel very slippery to me. And that came after I watched it. So I remember what I found fascinating about the link was it's a very uh, room two, three, seven take on it just because it's a very basic, because I think that link points out, like you could say, this is just basically a production design mistake and Mm -hmm. like uh, the geography of, of a set, like in room two, three, seven, where a window is supposed to be, there's clearly going to be a wall once you actually lay out, lay it out. But when you watch it on film, people argue that that's supposed to add to the surreality and the fakeness and the dreamlike feeling of everything too. Once you like, cause Kubrick's, you know, shoots famously, even in this movie, he does it in other movies, mainly shining. He famously shoots in these long steady cam shots where you can very clearly lay out the cinema geography of a sequence and you know where everything should be at. And so it makes it dreamlike once you start to lay it out in your head. Well, and that that page also drew me to the compare the, the similarities between this and The Shining, where The Shining is a movie where someone goes inside, right? Where this is a film where people go, someone goes outside of their uh, world in, in a way. If you want to, no, that's that's a good perspective like that, that way. And and but of course, Kubrick being a filmmaker who 
these films are loaded with detail and filmmaking skill and all these things to make it um, like a puzzle. And to go way back to what Raymond was saying, like that scene with Nicole Kidman bearing her, you know, emotion, this dream is not puzzle-like at all. It's it's deeply emotional and deeply felt. So I think it tricks it's you. Straightforward. And, it's very, very straightforward. It's very straightforward. It's very like on the note. There's not a lot of subtext to it. She's just telling you about a dream she had. And Tom and because they're high, you get you get away with this um, directness in a way that's dramatically interesting. And, and unusual for Kubrick too. And uh, yes, it's a bit of a. Really, it's. I was reading a thing today about um, some controversy about Nancy Myers and how Nancy Myers and a lot of her films, people get drunk on wine and then express things. And this writer was not okay. making that as a criticism. They were just like, this is a technique she uses, and there's nothing wrong with that compared to uh, anything else that any other filmmaker does. But it, it is a it is a trope of storytelling, an easy way to get people to, to like make mistakes is have them get drunk or get high, and that is what kicks off this whole movie. I mean. It's not a, it's not, it's not high science. It's just like people getting fucked up. Um, so yeah, I, but the room 237 view of Eyes Wide Shut was something I had never considered until this watch and reading those things and thinking about how the film is, is physically constructed and yeah, same here. And I, I'd like to just, and we, we, we can do this now we can do it later, but the aspect ratio thing, I don't think I really knew about this. What, what I mean? Okay, so um, Shane's got it now. Well, so. Kubrick. Well, Kubrick. It, Kubrick's. Uh, it was a big. I still kept kept my DVD box set of this. Kubrick basically um, was making his movies in the age of VHS before, way before sixteen by nine, obviously, and he would shoot a full four three aspect ratio on all of his movies except uh, two thousand one and Spartacus. Um, well, okay, okay. I think it's everything after, um, the killing and besides Spartacus in 2001. And when, basically when you see it on video, you're cutting off the tops and the bottoms, but if you let those open, they're protected. Like I worked on a, a few years ago, I worked on this movie that shot scope, but it shot digital scope. And I was supposed to add the mat on after, and I wasn't told about this. So I worked for three days where like I was reframing shots because I kept seeing microphones in the shot. And I finally had the balls to like tell the directors like, you know, you're, can you tell the DP you're getting the microphones in the shot? And that's when he told me we were (laughs) shooting two, three, five. (laughs) Basically all cute. It's most notable if you watch Dr. Strangelove because what will happen is it's protected, but you'll still see a frame line at the top slightly. And Clockwork Orange is the same way too. And, um, I remember working in the theater projectionist knowing this because some the the box set didn't have eyes wide shut and all you had to do was take the aperture plate out and you could see the full frame or you could put the aperture plate back in and and it what would happen is the light would then go over the masking because that's the way old uh, 35 projectors work before DCPs took over and DCPs like it's completely different the way you do an aspect ratio in there. What was the what was the reason you were bringing well, this up? Well, 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 two things. One, just an anecdote. I remember seeing uh, a beautiful mind at my local multiplex and seeing a boom op in it, a, a boom microphone, and being like, "Whoa, what a mess!" And then later, years later, when I projected, I'm like, "Oh, that's just a they didn't mat it." Correctly. That's just bad framing. That's yeah. bad framing. But, but it was crazy that they they would that the actual film would have the the thing on it. Um, I was asking well, because sometimes what will happen was they would basically they would mat it out on purpose. And uh, to make sure you have it, but for the most part, they just didn't. Did, I yeah. mean, like scope. Whenever people shoot two, three, five, what will happen is um, uh, it'll shoot stretched, and so you get the full frame on it. So you just have a more pure image on it. The, yeah, uh, it's, it's just a funny thing that um, 
that was that used to happen in movies and projection. But what I, what I was thinking yeah. is is the nature of when Tom Cruise is walking in New York. And and have you seen that? I'm sure you guys have seen the, the Koganada video about the like horizon lines in Kubrick. About how no 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 I haven't. Oh, there's a wonderful uh, Koganada who made Columbus, but you know made a lot of great Columbus, Indiana. Represent yeah, Columbus, Indiana. There you go. Yeah, right. Your, His right Criterion right features are the the best they ones really usually. Good. He, he's, yeah, they are very good. I, I think he's uh, he's terrific. Um, but he has a video about Kubrick's um, vanishing points and. I think the vanish points are directly related to his use of, of, of the Academy ratio, which relates to how he shoots um, in, in, in this film. So throughout the movie, you can almost watch. I watched the Blu-ray that's in 185, or actually I think it's 166 or 17. It's in a unique ratio. And the, the edges are not as important. But if you were to watch the movie in 133, right now on, on FaceTime, I'm in 133, so I'm looking at myself. Um, the, the world feels much more compressed on Tom Cruise. And he's often center-punched, and his conversations are often, you know, side-to-side, like very simple compositions that feature, like, like there's a scene in the morgue late in the movie where they pull out the body. And I remember watching the staging of that and thinking, like, wow, there's this, like, information on the sides that is sort of interesting, but you don't need it. And then the way that the um, attendant who's one of the few uh, African-Americans in the film actually uh, pulls the body out and then like steps forward in the frame and like Cruz looks at the body. And then I think it jumps the line. It's all very like, Oh, this is really profound one, three, three compositions that are, it's it's this weird, like old man thing. Like, as you said, Kubrick was like shooting for video well past when he he needed to do that. Like the future of, of, of home video is going to be watching, you know, in 4k, Scans, I did a you know a few weeks ago or a few months ago actually well it would have been last year because it was pre COVID I I did a radio show where I had to do it on my favorite directors and I picked Kubrick and I felt bad because I wanted I had this description of a Kubrick shot was going to be a um, symmetrical shot that had a vanishing point that was typically center punched you think things like the opening shot of Clockwork Orange or um, what else would it be? Like, the I hallways, mean, just, the shining, like so much of the shining, I think of, I think of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the vanishing points are so very clear on, on, on his, on his compositions. Um, one shot. Okay. I, I want, before we, before we move on to this, I want to ask you guys about one shot that like I noticed on the Blu-ray for the first time, this last viewing and I'd never seen before. It's in the trailer. It's a shot of, of uh, Tom Cruise um, walking down the street and he slaps his hands in frustration. It's early on in his journey. After he sees one of the his the recreations in his mind. Is that a rear projection shot? Yes. I read about this. Okay. Yes. Okay. The, uh, I believe the shot you're talking... There is definitely a rear projection in the movie. Well, no, no. Because most of the rear projection seems like it was the car scenes over the bridge and shit like that. But, but no, this him, shot is like a walking it's, shot it's, with it's, that. It's, it's, in the, it's actually in that doc. It's in that, web, that site I sent you. They, they mention it in there, I believe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's rear projection walking in New York shots and I didn't catch wow. it. I didn't catch it actually. And then, until I, I saw, either. until I saw that, well, this is the first time, I mean, I've seen it on film and this is the first time I actually, I noticed it. Um, I want to mainly put this question to Kyle, but this goes to you, Raymond too, as well. Is this, the, uh, there's an indie aesthetic of when all else fails with a low budget and art direction, put Christmas lights on a wall. Is this the birth of that? Like this whole, the whole art direction of this movie is just like random lights on walls. There are Christmas lights everywhere in this movie. And 
<laughs> and the green and red, I'm looking at my tree right now. We have like uh, very specific, actually, there's a whole thing. We got the wrong kinds of uh, silver lights. So we have the right kind of silver lights. And my girlfriend's basically Jewish anyway, so it's all very funny. But um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And I think, I mean, I love that we're doing this movie for the week of Christmas because what a, what a great, this is our Christmas movie. What a great holiday film. Um, but, uh, I don't know if this is the genesis of that or not. I'd never really put that together. I think that's, I always think of those like mumblecore movies being like, Oh, we have no depth to the shot. Like, like, like a shot of me in this room right now. Like what if we just strung some lights here, um, behind me. Now we created something rather than just a white wall and a, and a, you know, WPA photograph, which I have there. Um, so I don't know if this is the origins of that. I mean, I don't, that, that does speak to something though, which I don't know how much of an inspiration this movie is on people. I guess a lot of indie films and mumblecore movies and whatnot deal with like relationship issues, but they're never this, and I'm probably projecting here because of who Kubrick is and who the stars are, but they're never this mature or this loaded with celebrity, which is obviously a huge part of watching this movie. Right. Is right. knowing who this couple is as people. He made, when he was making the movie or writing the movie, he made a big deal about, we were going to have to have a celebrity couple. One of the first ideas they had writing was, uh, at the time still married. It was, uh, Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger early, early on. But I mean, this is when he was writing, I'm sure throughout the years, like, we're going to definitely go back into the old casting ideas later in the episode too, but I mean, that, that's a huge, I mean, obviously a huge part of the movie, but if, if this movie is, um, you know, if this is Hannah takes the stairs with Mark Duplass and, and Greta Gerwig, that's not in 19, in 2008, that's not going to play the same way. This is as, the, this is the $60 million version of that. <laughs> yeah. Of, of Tom Cruise and, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, Kim Basinger. See, I would say <laughs> that's a fun idea to maybe subliminally think of it as that. I, I just, I, that, I just don't think of this movie as being as influential as it should be. But maybe watching it again, I mean, I was really like stunned by it. So I was um, like, wow, this should be a thing that's taught and that I should be watching every year, just like be up on it. Is and, it that uh, thing where like, if this was any other filmmaker, it would have been their masterpiece, but because it's Kubrick's last movie, which is supposed to be the, you know, the main last final message and... And I think the stars heard it in some way. I think I think like it being like with the marketing and the and the Cruise Kidman narrative, and Tom Cruise is like you know 15 years after this probably like kind of dropped it down a little bit. But now I think we have some distance from that. And it's um, of course a great week to talk about Tom Cruise with his big blow up the other night. Oh, you're going to bring that <laughs> up? Cool. Good on you. Set. Good on uh, you, man. I mean that was that was a, that was a fun blow up to listen to. That was fun. But yeah, that's that's kind of yeah. When Raymond, do you feel similarly like uh, about yeah. the Christmas lights? So, uh, well, two things. One, uh, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, you said that the, the stars hurt it. And did you mean, did it hurt the film or did it hurt the reception or the way people, what, what their expectation was going into it? I, I think, I think it's hurt. I, what I meant by that was, I think it's hurt the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the fan reception in the years to come. You yeah. know, I think, I think when the movie came out, probably because of Kubrick's death and because of their fame, um, it it was like a Tom Cruise. It was more, I mean, it made twenty million. It made a lot of money, and that's not because of Kubrick. That's because of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. There was a there was a big deal at the time of like Kubrick clearly relied on star power to get, get his movies made, and you know he was a box like up until Full Metal Jacket, like all and not counting Barry Lyndon, like he had a streak of box office hits too with these very esoteric movies so including that and this this makes its budget back close to it um 
Mm. I mean, not totally, but domestic, it does it does quite well. So I, I meant I meant like the, um, you know, I'm trying to think about. You think Tom Cruise in like 2005? He was, he was, you know, the jumping on the couch era of him and the Scientology stuff. It was like, I don't think anyone was taking him seriously at all. And I think his work is. I I I actually really like Tom Cruise uh, in a lot of ways. I, I have problems with him too, but. Um, this film, and, and consider he does this and Magnolia in the same, this, this is like five months before Magnolia comes out. So I was going to bring this up. Are you guys familiar with the Paul Thomas Anderson on the set of Eyes Wide Shut story? I am not. No. Are you Raymond? No, no. Oh, it's amazing. It's basically he, um, um, because Magnolia is going to be his next movie. Paul Thomas Anderson visits uh, Kubrick on set and Kubrick, you know, is working this long period of time, uh, uh, 12 months, or I, don't, I, don't I keep saying 12 months. I'm not sure that's the right amount of time. And Paul Thomas Anderson walks on, sees how small of a crew Kubrick's actually working with. And uh, Anderson goes up to him and is like, do you normally work this small of crew? And Kubrick turns to him and goes, well, how big is your crew usually? And Paul Thomas Anderson to this day says, like, I have never felt like such a bigger Hollywood asshole for that. Because <laughs> of the idea of, like, every director fantasizes about, we know this, keeping their crew small as possible and, like, the minimal amount of people. And Kubrick's whole system worked in that he had the same people on payroll, but he had a very limited amount of people on payroll who knew what they were doing and were, that he knew were reliable to him. So... Like he could keep them going for months and months at a time, but he wasn't having a huge amount of crew work with them. That's why the movie was actually, even though it was expensive, was still affordable for that long of a schedule. Or four hundred days, yeah. yeah. Um, so with the Christmas lights, uh, uh, this it, that reminded me of something. I think like in my last watch through or not, I listened to a podcast. It was a, a um, film spotting, you know, with Adam Larson and oh, Adam Kempinar and Josh, Josh Larson. And they uh, uh, they brought up the Christmas lights, and I think it was one of them had a, a a theory about how they signified the facade in the world. I can't remember. This was okay. th- just just brought me this uh, brought this back because he's uh, and I think they were talking about how the two models tell her uh, tell him that uh, um, it's like where are we going? It's like to the end of the rainbow. The place is called the costume. Where place the is rainbow the ends. Rib- where the rainbow ends. Yeah, and, and uh, the rainbow the, fashions is where they go. Yeah, where they go. So uh, there are like definitely like I remember him some, saying something, and and this is maybe not helpful, but maybe the three of us can remember which scenes had this. But the scenes with the Christmas lights seem to be like it, it, they're so prevalent that it almost gets absurd and it becomes unrealistic. That like uh, they they represented the 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 parts of the 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 movie that were kind of the facade or like the 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 mask that is eventually maybe taken down by the end of the movie even I don't know well when they when he goes to the um uh, Domino the prostitute's apartment she has Christmas um, lights well I noticed it more on the second time when they go back after uh, I'm like I don't do you remember in the first time am I am I just wasn't paying attention the first time I think I remember the first time when they go into her bedroom remember things like oh she has Christmas lights in the bedroom. You know, but and I, I, I may just simply be like they set dressed it by the entrance and the staging of the second part time they come back to the apartment just goes by the entrance there. Um, and then I, I do remember one thing he, he said, and I thought this was interesting before he comes in and he says, I'll tell you everything. 
the la- the last thing he does before he goes into his room, and I I remember clearly turns off the Christmas lights. Chris turns off the Christmas lights. The Christmas so. tree. The Christmas tree. Excuse me. The Christmas, Christmas tree. tree. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I do, and, and I guess that, that that's like that's a very Kubrick thing where like all those the Christmas lights aren't there by accident. They're sort of very much signifying some kind of thing, and he turns them off before he walks in. So mm. that could be. Okay, so are you guys also, speaking of other things, are you guys familiar of all the people that got film parts for this and got cut out because of the lengthy parts of this? Are you familiar with Harvey Keitel and Jennifer Jason Lee? Yeah, those are the only two I know. I I did not know any either of those. Jennifer Jason Lee's fine. That makes sense. I don't understand why because it's an isolated scene. But the one that weirds me out is Harvey Keitel could have been the star of Apocalypse Now and Eyes Wide Shut. And he's just like, (laughs) nope. Well, yeah, he, he was Harvey Keitel was going to be Sidney Pollock's uh, character, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, just for my own curiosity, since you guys work so closely with Terry, it's so interesting to watch a filmmaker who's so precise in Kubrick about um, about the films, but is also benefiting from this sort of uh, unchecked cachet with actors and financiers and budgets in some regard. And still be willing to cut them out, right? So it's like, <laughs> so Terry, Terry for those films that we know made these sprawling movies with famous people. Well, I think this is the only movie Kubrick did that with, and it was supposedly over schedule. It was just the fact that he was filming forever with these people, and they just couldn't keep filming because he would. Because I mean, we Kubrick is very much into this like film, come up with an idea, develop it, film again, and keep filming until we got a good idea. And, you know, obviously with this long schedule and some of these actors just couldn't live with the schedule. I mean, the other the other actor, though, I, I bug I, 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 I forgotten about. And I forgot this is I mean, he's not an actor. He's mainly known as director, but Todd Field, the piano player. Well, I, I, I mean, know Nightingale. How, how funny that this film, like two of the first actors you meet are directors, Sidney Pollack and Todd Field. Mm. <laughs> I had I oh, I also had this perverse idea that the Sidney Pollock character in this is also the same character he is in Michael Clayton. <laughs> uh, They're both New York based, and he's going to orgies on the side. I, on the on the on the Blu-ray I have, there's a feature, a very charming like late '90s feature that's very excited to use like multiple um, uh, screens on time at the same uh, uh, like multi. <laughs> it's very it's very funny. Anyway. They interview everyone at the time of production. So they interview uh, – it's after Kubrick has died, but they're interviewing Pollock and um, and Kidman and Cruz and everyone. And Sidney Pollock talks about um, actually in a really interesting way how Kubrick was shooting his scenes. And he talks very much about Kubrick using technology and using video. And, and showing it to the actors. And showing it to the actors, know. exactly. So he's like, he's like, you know, yeah, he's got this – the implied thing is, yeah, he shoots 65 takes or whatever. But um, – He's like, we're doing multiple takes, and then he shows he's shooting on video, not on film, and then we get to watch what we're doing, and he can make notes about our hand should go here and our hand should go there. Yeah, I saw the same interview. I just was listening to an interview today with um, um, uh, uh, James Kahn talking about being taught by uh, Sidney Pollack in New York because uh, he was one of the student teachers at uh, the acting course that he was at, too. Well, because Pollock is someone you think of as a much more actor's director, right? That's what's so interesting yeah, to have he's him. Yeah, de- he's definitely an actor who went to being a director, but went back and forth after a certain point, even though he became significantly a director. And he was always such a great Hollywood director. He was still making efficient, great movies of, that were 
uh, studio system movies that were worked, but and I think he's a wonderful actor too. I mean, when he's in a movie, I always yeah. feel like a bit of Same. comfort when he's around. Do you, in the scene where he, uh, oh, when um, uh, Tom Cruise goes back to Sidney Pollock's place and he's confronting him and talking about like, let's cut the bullshit or whatever. That yeah. it, that scene, while I think the acting is great all around, that one was really strange to me because I could feel the act like you could see like the sort of almost traditional acting choices where like they're moving around the scene and like he comes up and grabs his yeah, glass puts it no. here takes his scotch glass puts it here and you i can feel the blocking you yeah feel you the, feel uh, all the, of that the, the script supervisor a, telling them where to put shit there's and a how, pool table. how big the levels are on the yeah. drink they're drinking well, there's yeah. a pool table in the middle of it. It's like the most, it's the most like student film. I remember being in college and like we had a pool to access to a pool table. Like let's set a scene around a pool table. It's the most like basic thing. But of course it feels great when you have Cindy Pollack and Tom Cruise directed by Cindy, yeah. uh, Cooper. <laughs> so neither of you guys have read the Frederick, Frederick Raphael memoir, Eyes Wide Open. No. Oh my God. This yeah. book is amazing. It basically, it's the screenwriter of Ice Watch, I have the biggest love hate relationship with this book because um, it came out like a few months after the release of the film, and I probably have read this movie, this book, more times than I've seen the movie all the way from start to beginning, because it's Frederick Raphael. Frederick Raphael is an Oscar-winning screenwriter. He won for John Schlesinger's Darling, but he also wrote uh, Two for the Road with Stanley Don and. and the movie he wrote that more notably in the last few years, I think it's come up is the Peter Bogdanovich Daisy Miller. But mm. when I first read this book, I had no clue who he was, except he co-wrote Eyes Wide Shut. And he's a European screenwriter, novelist, who also does book reviews on the side. And the whole book is like done in different formats of his whole relationship with Kubrick. They've known each other vaguely through the years, but he gets a call randomly. And it's all about, he's like, I'm this unknown, or I'm an Oscar-winning screenwriter. Kubrick's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Why doesn't he think I'm his equal? And he just, like, spends the entire book going over it. And it's very, like, is one of the most pretentious things ever, where he's just constantly, like, dropping his, 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 um, his erudite education, uh, uh, all he's read the, the Latin he was reading at nine. And he keeps like, um, the funniest is, uh, there's this, um, that's why Ovid's in there, I guess. Yes. The every, or, or it's like, uh, Fidelio is a Beethoven opera that yeah. those references are seem like they came from him. And, um, the Michael Hare, uh, Kubrick bio that came out that was supposed to be the eyes wide shut feature because you know Kubrick was very protective about his press and wanted friends basically to write it so he could edit it um he has this really funny description of uh, all this stuff where he talks about uh, the book being very antagonistic um uh he, the phrase I loved he goes there's this unfortunate command of foreign words and phrases where he just keeps putting French and Latin into shit but <laughs> also there's um Raphael describes Kubrick as a giant self-hating Jew according to Michael Hare <laughs> I mean, and I'm making this book sound bad, but the thing of it is, there's so many amazing stories that, like, he just keeps throwing aside. Like, um, have you guys ever heard the story about how Kubrick, Brando, according to this book, according to this book, and Frederick Raphael, how Kubrick got fired off One Eye Jacks? Mm-hmm. Didn't know he's on it. <laughs> so he was originally supposed to be uh, the director on One Eye Jacks, or he was one of them, but he was one of the last ones. And so basically, according to Kubrick, 
they by Raphael. They worked for two years, and finally, and his and like Kubrick didn't realize that Brando really wanted to direct it, and so Brando had this like um, uh, hotel suite and a, with a giant table. And he had all the department heads, and he basically put out a stopwatch, gave every department head two minutes to tell them their problems with the movie that they thought needed to be fixing, and Kubrick was last in line to talk. And so he went through at the table. Everyone had two minutes. And after after their two minutes, Brando would hit the stopwatch and say, you're done. And Kubrick was like, this is ridiculous. And Brando was like, no, you have to do this. So he clicked the stopwatch. Kubrick started going through page one, got like part of the way through page two when the stopwatch clicked. And uh, Brando stopped him. And, and Kubrick turned to Brando and goes, why don't you go fuck yourself, Marlon? <laughs> And Brando just stands up, goes into the bedroom of the suite, and then doesn't open the door. And Kubrick's just like, well, he's going to open the door eventually. And he does it. And so <laughs> they, everyone leaves. And that's how Kubrick finds out that he's fired from One-Eyed Jacks. <laughs> Those are the type of stories that are in this book. Like, they're just like random asides. And, and the thing is, like, when I say read the book... I'm talking about, I skimmed the book just because there's so much pretentious, like, why do, there's so much, like, soul-searching from Frederick Raphael, like, why doesn't Kubrick think I'm a genius like he is throughout this? And when I say that, that's a little clearer than the way he does, because it's just this, all this, like, last-century boomer uh, book editor from U uh, Europe talking about, like, it's, it's, it's pretty turgid stuff to get through, too. But you just skip through it because there's all these stories in there. You mentioned something that I wanted to touch on earlier, which um, not, not totally related to Ashley Shut, but related to Kubrick larger, which is at the moment that this movie is being developed and going to release, I'm getting into like the internet and into IMDb. Same here, same here. And I, all... I have this very strong memory of visiting my brother at Purdue, and uh, the only time I had access to the computer, all I did was look up stuff on Ice Shut. And But the other film that we were all looking up at the time was AI. Because there was this rumor, this persistent rumor, that Kubrick was making a film with Joseph Mazzello, mm. the, the star of Dr the kid in Jurassic Park, uh, which I, well, maybe what triggered this for me just now was the relationship between Kubrick and Spielberg, who is like the ultimate populist, you know, filmmaker, but who I, I think is obviously a great filmmaker, and Kubrick and him had a shared um, an affinity for each other's work, but. Uh, so Kubrick, the rumor was Kubrick was developing a film called AI and he was shooting with this kid, Joseph Mazzello, for like 30 years was the plan. And so they were supposedly shooting stuff and then when it, basically the boyhood meth model of filmmaking. Um, and then in the middle of that, this film, AI, this film, Ice Man Shut's going to get made, so this Irish, and then he dies and that's it. And then, of course, Spielberg then makes AI. Yeah. Which uh, I think is a great movie, but um, I, I think I, mentioning this right now, I think we're going to have to do an episode on that movie because I love the shit out of that movie. Yeah, I, I'd love to revisit that. I mean, my, my take on it is I, I don't think I actually don't think I've seen it since I saw it in theaters. But I remember being like, "Wow, this movie is so great!" And then it has that coda. I remember not liking the coda, and I wrote something on Letterboxd about the coda, and a friend of mine who's a filmmaker was like fuck you, the code is the best part. I would argue you're missing the point if you don't take in the code of... Yeah, it's been 20 years. I'm going to give myself... I'm going to give... It, I'm gonna, it, it's it's <laughs> worth... That That's the movie that I, when I revisit every time, is more profound every time I see it. Really? Really? Yeah. 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 I remember being lukewarm on it and watching it 
um and wishing i remember my my big thought was like i wish uh kubrick had got to make it so i should probably definitely watch it again again this is another episode the whole the the whole thing that is at from the grave kubrick knew that he needed a very emotionally manipulative uh a way of telling the story and it needed a folklore way of telling it. So that's why it was smart to pick Spielberg to do it just because yeah. he knew all the things he could p- pull on the heartstrings to make certain elements of it work. But um, every time I try to go back and this is a complete aside, but uh, every time I try to go back and I think about watching AI, I actually go back and watch Bicentennial Man. <laughs> I, this is the oh, truth. We're all losing with that one. Yeah. And, uh, 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 I, that movie gets me like it 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 like gets it, it puts tears in my eyes every time and I cannot say why but I'm like it, every few years I'm like I think it's time for a good bicentennial cry. Oh, shit. <laughs> Am I overdue for a rewatch of Bicentennial yeah. Man? Chris I don't know. I don't know. Not by the way, not it. a bad idea for a dual score, doesn't it? You you could bring us on and we'll do Raymond do Bicentennial Man, I do AI. We get reactions. It'll be, it'll be great. <laughs> well, okay. AI is a good segue into uh, the last few Kubrick movies, including AI, are so obsessed with Freud and Jung. And one of my big rewatches on this of like, I hate to be this guy, but like half of my research on what I know about Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung comes from what Kubrick said about it and what told, <laughs> telling me what to read. And this is one of the things that I've outgrown, I feel like, just because like Freud, obviously in psychology, doesn't mean shit to anybody. Jung still has a little bit of relevance, but just a lot of the the this ideas of human psychology, do they already, does this already feel dated slightly, especially human sexuality? Uh, Eyes Wide Shut, the movie itself? Yeah. Because the thing about AI I love is that it offsets the idea that which I attribute to Freud, but it's not really Freud's idea, but this idea that uh, sex is the biggest preoccupation of all human beings. In evolutionary terms, it definitely is. And what's interesting about AI is it offsets that. It's like if we create an AI and say, you need to be obsessed with a mother just because, you know, uh, fairy tales are obsessed with moms, then this creature is going to be obsessed with the mother. And that's what's interesting about the whole movie because it builds the whole society off of an obsession of the mother and its creator. And... This, I don't know. Like, obviously, I, 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 maybe the the obsession in Ice Wide Shut of sex and an institution need to be made around that with marriage. Okay, going back to a point you made or you both made earlier, mainly Raymond made. I have never seen this movie when I'm in a relationship, so I always look at this as a judgment on marriage, far off in the horizon, and. You know, back in my 20s, I thought I was going to get married. Now I'm not sure anymore. So it always ends up, when I watch it again, it's a litmus test of what I think of marriage and the institution of it and how it can maintain itself throughout the years, whether it needs sexuality to keep it going, whether it needs commitment or what exactly to keep it going. Um, Well, in terms of it feeling dated, I think... Well, I think, and Kyle said this earlier too, like the kind of the eight and a half thing, every few years you watch it, it becomes a different thing. So uh, it's never felt, it's felt different to me each time. So mm-hmm. in, in that way, it's never feels like it's it's uh, 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 approaching something in a way that's outdated, even in terms of views of sex, right? Like when I was younger, the the, the parts about the the sexuality were bigger, 
just because like it was just more of a preoccup uh, it was more of a part of my like I guess I was in high school and then uh, in college so there was just a bigger part of my brain but um now I watch it, it was kind of just more of the connection between the peoples and uh um I think like I I, I think the movie's more about like facades not more so to me this time than yeah. the actual the, the the kind of like if you if, if the the uh, movie need or if the movie the marriage needs like sexual uh, sex to to achieve i think it's about losing facades and like i think her line where she says now we're awake right uh, uh kind of says that like they drop the they drop the sort of like he believed that he wasn't really this is where the marriage details. is really at at this point this yeah is it, like we're not we're not all sleeping and yeah and he's like he didn't like believe recessing. he could be jealous he's like i'm not jealous and one story he can't stop see he like it, it changes like the like it completely changes him right he's like he's such a tom cruise at the beginning and a completely different person at the end and uh, uh so uh, i think it's uh, to me it, it's very much about that and i think like just maybe whatever it is they need and for them i think it is sex plays a big role and i think that's why at the end she's like there's one very important thing we need to do and then that's fuck. The, such a great in line i yeah. one one story that came up i was thinking of in terms of um the expectations of sexuality which i want to as we're winding down i have a few more things i want to talk about but one thing i want to talk about along those lines um i was thinking of this kevin smith story that he tells about spielberg and lucas where and again this is a kevin smith story so this is uh you know five degrees of, sepula- uh, of, sep- of separation and he was stone telling this in front of a college audience. But he told this story about Ben Affleck spending a Thanksgiving with Spielberg a few years ago with Lucas coming over and they ended up hanging out on the internet. This was like late 90s. They hang they hung out on the internet and, and Smith tells a story about basically them giggling over looking up lingerie ads on the internet and that was the <laughs> height of pornography for them. And there's something about the, if you come at this movie with my 1999 expectation that Kubrick's going to make the ultimate porno, and this is what the movie is. Even though I did want to bring this up, uh, Kyle, when you mentioned the um, the uh, CGI creatures, Roger Ebert described the uh, silhouettes in front of the orgy scene as Austin Power silhouettes. You remember the opening Austin Power? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, he's like, yeah, yeah, he's blocking it. Yeah. yeah. That was the controversy at the time, and that is a thing we don't have to think about anymore, even though I'm just brought it up. Well, um, I, I have a very specific thought about the nudity in this movie, which uh, I was I'm trying to like phrase this correct. Not, 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 not really, I'm not, this, that's not an issue, but it's like the, there's a scene in the orgy where all the women are in a circle, right? They're in robes, and they take their robes off. They are they're all masked, but they are all then nude, and they all have the exact same body type. Their breasts are the exact same perkiness. I always assumed that was a Kubrick thing because, like, it's also the models that were in Clockwork Orange or the Naked Lady in Shining too. It's it's it, it totally is what it is, and it's 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 such it's one of those choices that I think when you're like 15 and horny, you're like, whoa, naked women. And then you're like 37 and you're like, whoa, there, this is kind of eerie. Like this is, um, I'm seeing a, this is actually goes to the dreamscape. I, I thought I mentioned this earlier of like, there is one body type that maybe Tom Cruise's character cares about or that, um, 
And because we do, we are privileged to see Nicole Kidman naked earlier in the film. This is definitely not her body on these women. And they are all cast exactly the same. They are faceless. And then they are being sort of a version of raped or taken advantage of by wealthier men. Um, and I found it like deeply unsexy and not at all titillating, uh, despite mm. the women being like objectively beautiful, you know, shaped women. Um, and that was another way to to use the five year thing that things have changed for me <laughs> in the twenty years since this film came out. Um, because I think at the time I was like, "Whoa, check it out!" One thing, one thing I noticed in my last night's viewing, especially because it was the first time I had seen the non silhouette version, was um, m- from a modern standpoint. I have to say, where is the male gaze in this movie? And obviously, it's all women naked. Mm-hmm. There was one gay guy couple at in the when the they're orgy. dancing. That was about, yeah. no, no. I was talking about at the orgy. Yeah, yeah, it's when they're they're, they're kind of like slow dancing in that ballroom kind of thing, and one of the guys they, is naked. Were they dancing or were they were they they uh, doing like a fake motion that's supposed to simulate something else? What could, oh no, I remember one where there's kind of like that dance scene, and one of the guys is naked, and he's kind of covered by the guy who's clothed in the the hood. Okay. I, I miss this no matter what, by the way. So, wait, is that during the orgy? The, during the or during the one I, I guess, saw is during the orgy. The yeah. Rich, yeah. I guess the ritual is the one you're phrase. saying is too. They're yeah, that, of it, dancing once naked and once. Yeah, maybe yeah. we are talking about the same one, and I'm just making a crude yeah. reference on it. it. It's there's the one where there's a lot of guys, and they're kind of like the music is. Uh, uh, they're kind of. It feels like they're like kind of slow dancing or something, and uh, it, I think it's after maybe he's being called to. No, it, I, I I distinctly remember because like the the guy is naked, but he's like well covered because they're close to one another. But you wait, you did you see the version you saw had silhouettes in it? No, no silhouettes. Kyle, maybe this is the thing that it was just this maybe. is the thing that gets revealed whenever the silhouettes disappear. Yeah, it made my made my Warner Brothers. Although it was I the first sure. time I saw it, I'm pretty sure my Warner's Blu-ray was 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 uh, not silhouetted. But whatever, it, it's remind this 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 moment that we that, that we both missed. Uh, probably you know for whatever whatever jokey reasons we want to make. But is it are you are you standing out for you for what reason for like how it's not necessarily the male gaze or for yes because I, I had those same thoughts for the first time watching it similar to you where they all were the same body type and uh, and this was probably the first time I noticed like this is the Kubrick body type right this is the mm-hmm. one you're you're always seeing. And uh, um, it was also second to the. This was the first time the the. This is probably the most terrifying that scene has been for me, right? Before it was always same, like same here. Yeah, it was like very so, cool. Yeah. Like I think the most terrifying shot in all of uh, uh, Kubrick's movies is those two people turning their heads looking down at him. That like it gave me goosebumps. Like it the, the really zoom, the zoom, the zoom, the zoom, right? It zooms yeah. in. Yeah, Which, and then, if, you, if we're talking about the same one, that is Leon Vitale in the the mask. In he the mask with the. Uh, yeah, he plays like two different parts. He's also the speaking part and the, uh, uh, the the you have the wrong password. That, uh, that, yeah, yeah. So that, like um, that, but it was scary and, and it stood out to me because I think it was right where my eye was resting from the previous shot. Well, that's a good hmm. composition, center center punch composition. <laughs> I wanted to bring up you both. Also, I keep bringing up books that we I 
you haven't read eyes eyes wide open is a fun book you guys should just check out this one i'm not recommending you guys to read but it's terry southern's book blue movie which is um kubrick had this tradition of working with screenwriters and great writers he worked with a lot of novelists and blue movie follows this thing where both uh, anthony burgess who wrote clockwork orange wrote a um, napoleon novel for kubrick to adapt that he never adapted and when Kubrick was supposedly uh, thinking about doing this high-class porn in the seven or in the seven, early seventies, Terry Southern wrote a book, in theory, for Kubrick to do. But what's weird about it is it's about a, a director named Boris Arian, who's based on Kubrick, making a the biggest budget X-rated movie of all time, <laughs> and like. I read this book finally. Pauline Kale's a big fan of the book. Um, I read it finally two years ago. I happened to read it right at the height of the Me Too uh, revelations happening. And so I started to attribute a lot of reality onto Kubrick that I just retroactively after the fact don't think is there. Like, okay, back to Eyes Wide Open real briefly. There's a story they tell in there of Terry Southern and Kubrick writing Dr. Strangelove together in the same office at Shepard and Studios. And um, there's an actress that kept passing them by that was really attractive that would ignore them. And uh, Terry Southern decided to write her a love letter. And all it said was, come to our room for good head. <laughs> That's love the letter. kind of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the kind of immaturity and sexuality that um, was it. Th- it comes throughout a lot of Terry Southern's books and comes throughout this, but like, there's like, you know, a, a dwarf having sex with somebody or something like that. That's the kind of jokes that go throughout this movie. And that being said, this, this book is pretty fun. Cause it's like, I, when I read it, I really thought this was how Kubrick created art out of like, there's this description in the book of, he gets a screenwriter named Tony Sander. Also, also with the initials TS and they write the script over three days on B12 injections. <laughs> it just feels really late sixties, early seventies. And, and supposedly for years, whenever people would hear about eyes wide shut, this was the movie that Kubrick was supposed to do. And this is what I know. I thought I was expecting whenever I saw eyes wide shut and obviously didn't, didn't happen. What, uh, what, when was the book written? What year? 70 or 71 is your 70, 71. Well, I mean, Kubrick wanted to make this movie Eyes Wide Shut for a long time, right? Like it's something from his when he was much younger, right? Yeah, he got the rights in the seventies. I was also going to ask you: Can you guys imagine uh, Steve Martin? Because that was who he originally wanted to play this role. Well, also, uh, I read this just actually one of the few things I read before the podcast that Woody Allen was his choice in the seventies. That was I had heard that too. I mean, both those both. Can you imagine both these? Who like what they? Because to me, that version of the movie got made in 1985 with Scorsese and After Hours. Yes. Yeah, so actually, someone I follow on Letterboxd wrote, uh, what if they made After Hours but not funny? <laughs> that's I <was> like, <laughs> so that was really, really a great, just a, that's why Letterboxd exists. Um, but all those actors, I, I, I don't, I think they're all, first of all, great actors. And I think that the way this film plays on celebrity and the way it capitalized on this particular celebrity, referring to both Kidman and, and Cruz, is a big chunk of the movie because you are believed, like, even watching it now, I'm like, man, those two were married. They had kids together. Like, so is this like picking comedians to have them do a humorless performance? 
Well, I think I, I, I do think both these actors are underrated, even still. Maybe Nicole Kidman is not properly rated, but um, well, I was saying like if you got Steve Martin or Woody Allen to do this, yeah, right. Like, yeah, would they have been? I think both those guys have. Uh, well, certainly Woody Allen have have a have a darkness to them um, sure. that that could be. You know, the problem with the thing with Tom Cruise is there's not much to him. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm now speculating on Tom Cruise's life, but it's like there's very little to Tom Cruise that's interesting, right? Like he's a movie. Like what's interesting about him is that he's just movie star. He is our yeah, but he had stereoty- his best. He had like my favorite performance of those right after this, and I and it, it reflects positively on Eyes Wide Shut too. But Magnolia, the rage inside him, the sexuality really has played well. Well, and this is why I thought this outburst in the Mission Impossible Seven set was so interesting because I listened to that and I was like, whoa, he is being Frank T.J. Mackey. He is being, ups- he, he's, it's like. Respect the COVID. I, oh, I have tame tr- the vaccine. When I have trouble, <laughs> respect the COVID. <laughs> so that's really good. I, I, I have trouble accepting Tom Cruise as a person outside of the roles he plays because of the nature of his like fame. One of the things about Magnolia, I've, he's been one of those actors I've always been helpful to designate between actors who are character actors and leading star actors. And Magnolia was like, they managed to synthesize what he was able to do to make him a character actor for uh-huh. one movie. But he's a guy who has really pushed himself to be an amazing lead actor. And he, and in Magnolia, he's playing a star and he's doing that thing where he's a star in another movie. It's just, he gets his, you know, 40 right. minutes of screen time in Magnolia. I am quietly uh, judging you. I, I don't know about, <laughs> I don't know about uh, Steve Martin as well, but I think like the trajectory of this character uh, feels like it would be so natural for Woody Allen. Like I feel like this is what he would do in his own movie, where I think it was the most interesting to see someone like the sort of, I don't know, charisma or the the idea of Tom Cruise. Uh, um, well, there's be also challenged. the fact that Woody Allen was such a, a sex star in the '70s too. Yeah, and you know, he and, won over Diane Keaton. Yeah, and uh, uh, uh and, and and but like in 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 this at this point, like there's. I guess like t- the fact that it's Tom Cruise in the role feels like the movie knows it's Tom Cruise in the role in, in some ways, right? Yeah. With like, or the uh, movie uh, kind of develops itself knowing that it's Tom Cruise. Yeah. Because like the way he starts off, like especially at the party, and uh, um, even he smiles. Yeah, smiles, or even like like you feel him in a, c- a couple of areas. Especially, I think I felt him most when he's like, uh, um, uh, the 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 prostitute's roommate. When he's like kind of putting the moves on her, you feel it there, as well. Oh yeah, well the level of smiles and the and the 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 uh, silent he responds to the silence with a laughter and a smile, and yeah. it's a movie star reaction to it. It's like every actor when LS fails, smile. Yeah, like it's it's always their default. Yeah. And, and to watch that guy get broken down this way, I think uh, uh, would be pretty different than I think watching Steve Martin and especially Woody Allen. Um, but I, I do think there's always something maybe very true and exciting about comedians in serious roles. Like, I think that really does work well. Right. Uh, um, but, uh, I, I, I really think like, uh, I'm not, I think he did a great job in the movie, but the fact that it was Tom Cruise and it, and that fact hasn't really changed up to now. Tom Cruise is still kind of Tom Cruise, very similar to the way he was at that time. Now there's more depth really, to him. He has, yeah. There's always been the speculation that he's going to move over to his Paul Newman roles, like Paul, like older Paul Newman roles, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, no, he's Steve still Martin. 
It's okay. Go ahead. Like, wasn't he like pushing, delaying uh, Mission Impossible 2? Like while he was waiting for uh, Eyes Wide Shut to finish, like they kept pushing it back. Well, Mission Impossibles are still going on. So like, I think like (laughs) I I can't uh, 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 like you still kind of see him as that character. And uh, I mean, I I think that adds so much to it. Yeah. Well, I just it adds to how desirable he is. Like for all the women he meets, you're like, well, why wouldn't you have sex with Tom Cruise? Mm -hmm. It's Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. But you're also like, well, there's Nicole Kidman back at the house and she's you know, Nicole Kidman, <laughs> you know, like there's yeah. even though like your brain's doing a lot thing of, back at the house. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot that plays into a modern audience watching this movie. Um, that I think is intentional. No, no, I, I was, uh, the one thing I would say about Steve Martin that did, doesn't pl- he never, I don't think he ever had a dramatic role that played out like this. Cause whenever he plays dramatic roles, he always plays it flat. I think his literary career is the, the only thing that shows this level of graffiti does, but like yeah. his acting career, Never, I'm not to say that he couldn't have delivered a good performance or Cooper could have gotten gotten one from him, but it seems like the literary performance. Um, Kyle, I know we're we're slow on your time, so we need to get you going. Um, one more question. Um, this is okay. This is a weird last question to ask, oh. but uh, are you guys familiar with the conspiracy theory on the internet that the Illuminati killed Kubrick because he revealed how their orgies played out? Vaguely, not specifically. <laughs> Kyle is laughing at Lacey. Uh, I am not aware of that, but I am weirdly aware of the Illuminati on the internet, so I did not know that this was a plan. Please go on. No, I think I, I wanted to discuss this because, like, I think there's so much data out there that points to this not being the case, but I I would love it if it really were the case. It would be... But do, I don't know. Do, do, it, do, it just doesn't make sense where, like... He completed a movie and it was still got com- released by a giant conglomerate owned by at the time AOL, I think. But let's kill him like two months before it gets released and before he can finish looping. What he did he die of a was it did he have a heart attack or was yeah. it Yeah. One one of my big evidence I just looked over was um there's a book that came out uh, I want to say it's actually a few years now. It's like four or five years ago. But his driver, uh, Emilio D'Alessandro, there's also a great documentary based on the book. I think it's on Netflix. There's a description of the days around Kubrick's death. And Emilio, he was the only one hanging around Kubrick's house while basically Kubrick had sent his editor, uh, I mentioned earlier, he'd sent him the editor to show the print to um, Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise, and the studio executives. And... This book's great detail of like Kubrick's notes that he would leave around the house and stuff like that to all the people working with them, but it just details like the last few days he was weak and cognitively not there, and then one day Jan Harlan calls Emilio and just like, "I'm sorry, Stanley died." It just doesn't fit the narrative. Like if he got poisoned by the Illuminati, it would have had to be a multi-day poisoning. On top of the fact that like. The, all the book stuff in Eyes Wide Open with Frederick Raphael, he would have had to been on it too. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. Well, There's this one funny story in Eyes Wide Open with, that does go towards this where, um, you know, Frederick Raphael is a novelist who can come up with a lot of interesting stuff. And so they're trying to figure out some background information. Kubrick's trying to, wants him to write some more stuff. And as a lark, Raphael writes this fake FBI dossier about orgies that uh, JFK had attended. And 
the thing in the book is there's these all these transcripts of phone calls between him and Kubrick, and he has a transcript of the phone call where Kubrick calls and is like, where did you get this? And Raphael's <laughs> like, I made this up. He's like, no, but seriously, where did you get this? Because I need to know where you got this from. And Raphael keeps trying to explain to him, like, this is a fake thing that I made up, and Kubrick is actually spooked and paranoid about this dossier, supposedly. <laughs> That's Maybe uh, the Illuminati was going to kill the movie, but Stu- uh, Kubrick said that I will redeem the movie, and, you know, it went from there. The movie's too good for the Illuminati to kill. Well, because that's what the, the the woman does in the movie. I will redeem him. Or <laughs> Stop! Oh, yeah. I will redeem him. My my, my, my girlfriend who who grew up in the West Side, we she made a she made a, a comment during the movie like this mansion they're at. Well, it has to be in in on Long Island, and she made a comment, and I was thinking this. She's like this. I was thinking, oh, this is a Great Gatsby thing. Like this mansion where this orgy is happening okay. is a North Egg Great Gatsby thing. There's a green light in the in the uh, yeah. orgy, right? Yeah, she's like, but she's like, there's Orgiastic no green light. But like, no one. She's like, she's not wrong. She's like, no one's going to Long Island. It's a long way away. <laughs> like, like, I don't care how late it is. She's not going to Long Island for an orgy. Um, <laughs> I I want to make up. I want to bring up a point, and maybe Shane was here, but about a decade ago, LACMA here in Los Angeles did a Kubrick. Exhibit. I wasn't here. I I missed it. I wanted to see this so badly. I didn't see this. It it was it was an extraordinary exhibit. And I, some personal history. I worked closely on an exhibit about um, Alfred Hitchcock, that was sort of that I was involved with the college and my mentor in college kind of developed it. And it was sort of about de- uh, demystifying the auteur. So the idea that um, yeah, Hitchcock is is a great filmmaker and his films carry his voice, but he was a great collaborator and. His production designers, costume designers, cinematographers, editors, actors, all of them are huge parts of why those films are so great. And this Kubrick thing was a little less focused on that attitude. It still had the Kubrick as genius. But the thing that struck out to me was there was a series, and I have pictures, which I obviously can't share over a podcast, but they had um, script pages out that were annotated by Kubrick. And Kubrick always collaborated. I'm not sure... And Shane, correct me if I'm wrong. Were any of his films written and directed by Stanley Kubrick purely, not based on source material or co-written with somebody? No, not a um, not a single one. Because I, I want to say Killer's Kiss, Kiss is the closest. He was credited as a yeah. writer-director on both Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange. But both but, are based. Both are based on pre-existing IP. Right, if right, we want right, to use right, the modern right, right. <laughs> terminology. Clockwork Orange is a pretty. I can't wait for that Clockwork Orange sequel where they finally have the actual chat, last chapter in it. Yeah. I, I just have watched something interesting about Kubrick. That he was someone who, despite his confidence as a filmmaker, his skills as a filmmaker, he he lacks some amount of originality in terms of like he needed the bones of story to work within. And that's I true think to, to his credit, he always made the point that he wanted after a certain point in his career, he only wanted to adapt stories that he could tell could, that he could re he he could reassess and figure out what works and doesn't work on. He he was very clear on that. that that's that's and that's a, that's a that's a fascinating. I actually didn't know that. That's a fascinating point to to make that you're like he oh, only wanted to adapt other books for a while, although it wasn't necessarily just books. You but think instead it comes of with coming the fascination with his, on form. Sure. I mean, I know part of the reason I've always been obsessed with him is uh, his formalism. I mean, like structure such a big deal. The endings being such a big part is always so thing that, I, that drew me to him very early on. Yeah. But I, um, I also feel like in the film nerd game that we all traffic in, it's like the writer director 
who originates the story and who sees it through. And that's not Kubrick. Like he, no, he is that, someone to be fair. That is definitely not Kubrick. He's interpreting things and he's the, maybe the best ever at doing that. I mean, Scorsese is not a huge writer director. He's also excellent at interpreting other people's material, but um, almost as a rule, Kubrick needed co-writers. He needed. Yeah. Uh, no, I think material. in the last few years, I've given him credit for being a better collaborator than I initially gave him to. For someone who's known as auteur genius, who a singular perfectionist, he still needed people around him, and he needed his writers around him. And that was that was a big part of the exhibit. That was, if I remember, the best part of the exhibit was like page notes from The Shining, and you know, notes about the novel, notes about the screenplay. I forget who this collaborator was in that screenplay. Uh, it was a woman, wasn't it? It was um, Diane Johnson. Diane Johnson. Diane Johnson. Diane. She she wrote Lay Divorce. Yeah, that wrote yeah. Lay Divorce. Yeah. Um, Damn. Yeah. Okay, that was in theory supposed to be my last question, but I did the one question was uh, I did have actually one more final, 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 final question. Um, so Kubrick famously cut a shit ton of stuff after 2001 and The Shining. And he died before he was able to do the mix on this. If he had survived, what do you think would have gotten cut from this movie? From Eyes Wide Shut? Like what, like what scenes would have been cut? Yeah. Well, have you guys ever seen the difference between the American and the European versions of The Shining? No. It's 20 minutes and there's very little notable things. It's just the American or the uh, <laughs> European version is 20 minutes shorter, but just slightly faster. And there's some different, like there's a half a scene cut here and there, but for the most part, it's just literally scenes in faster. That's so interesting because I, I tend to watch movies that have, like this summer I watched the New World three-hour version, which I'd never, the 172-minute, which I'd never seen. And I was like, what do you take out of this movie? Like, what what could you remove from this? Of course, I've seen the 130-minute and the 150-minute versions already. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to say, like, what do you remove and not notice? I, lo- I love that question. It is, it's a big question because, I mean, a lot of um... – what ends up happening with the shining is it's a pace thing. Like there's a much more, it's a much more deliberate rhythm in the American version, the longer American version. So this, uh, this movie has a deliberate rhythm too. It's very sure, hypnotic. Sure, exactly. And even in, even in the, the speech, it is at times so incredibly slow, like intentionally. This, and this like, did, this didn't come up on the ref episode, but I always, I did want to talk about the, the re- repetition, the, the thing of like, I, by the way, it's nice to see you, Kyle. And you say it back to me, is it nice to see me? And I say, it's nice to see you, Kyle. <laughs> it's the like th- th- rule of threes on like dialogue where you repeat it three. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like the way they speak or move, especially in the orgy scene is just, uh, I mean, I, I, I think it's probably pretty deliberate. I thought about that as I was watching and I couldn't think, I, I, I probably wouldn't take anything specifically out because the movie uh, to me is like, it's it, it's a bunch of sort of these vignettes, you know, like uh, um, specifically like, you know, this episode happens like Odysseus's episodes. Right. This episode happens. This episode happens. This episode happens. And he kind of revisits, vis- revisits them all in the second half. And the meaning of the film is so, what you take in it is just how you fit those episodes together. Right. right. I, and, I think uh, the, the closest I had was after the orgy. I was thinking the repercussions of him investigating stuff. But even then, it all felt essential. And even like the repetitions, all st- they were all done in single shots. There wasn't a shot reverse shot where you can cut them out. Could, could you lift the entire domino sequence? 
Could you lift him going like to her apartment? I'm trying to now. I'm doing a little bit of edit. <laughs> these editors are both. No one can see this, but both these guys are looking in the distance, could. like. What? <laughs> I think you could. I, I think you could, because because I've always attributed the domino sequence with the um um the newspaper headline he has afterwards was uh, lucky to be alive. And when my when my friends first started presenting to me like, oh, you you know this is a dream. And they, that was the evidence they gave me was like, he, he could have gotten HIV, but he's lucky to be alive as opposed to the guy that's following him that might be killing him. Yeah. Which was what was really apparent last night. I don't know. I think, yeah, you might. Be. I mean, I think you, you, you could and you probably wouldn't feel it. But I think the I, I, it's hard to tell what the without watching it without that scene, those scenes, what it would feel like. Right. Because there's something about going back. And uh, I do love that he's so Tom Cruise in that. And how that's continuously going to be. Yeah, I think yeah. your description of it earlier was good. There's also the fact that like he's 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 willing to get his jollies off from whatever a, a options he has, whether it's going to be a prostitute find on the street or going to an orgy. The the um the Russian father pimping out Lilio Sobieski, like that part is something that's from the novel that I'm wondering actually that should have. Like I still don't entirely understand except this idea of like. I, yeah, I, I if is it just supposed to be all forms of sex that is supposed to be appealing to him? Like, does he could he have any kind like model sex, underage sex, or like? <laughs> well, and to, and to be clear, I think the film's better the way it is. But like, as a story, sure. could it work yeah. without that character, the Domino character, and could it work without the Lula Sobieski pimping and then the weird coda to that, which? Honestly, that was one of the most confounding moments I found rewatching the movie. Is when those two men emerge. When I've heard about the what was cut from two thousand one, it seems pretty obvious. When I hear about what's cut from The Shining, I'm not entirely sure. Like that makes a huge difference. Do you so. know what I would cut that has nothing to do with uh, um, time? Sure. Is all his visions of his wife having. Sex with I, that man. I had that vibe too. You get that? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, there's, there's, there's a certain vibe with Kubrick of overkill. Like, like you just like, did you get this shot? Well, here's another version of that shot. Let's do it again. Well, it's such and, a dated, it's such a dated, like, it's like this weird strobe effect. And, well, the, the frame rate is a thing yeah. that Kubrick yeah. has never done something like that before. Yeah, and it's, and it's, not, it's like black and white, blue tinted. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah, and uh, well, the thing with the, the reason those those scenes actually kind of very those are probably like the thing i like the least about the movie by far and um is the when i think about eyes wide shot and this probably wasn't the case when i first watched it but over the other two when i think about or thought about it over the years before i watched it again this time it wasn't the orgy scene that came to mind it was my favorite part about the the movie was were the zooms in the taxi where you see his face and i have and i before i watched it this time i remembered no i didn't remember the the cutaways and I was like, those those moments were the best to me because it was, it was just like this the movie full of, is full of subtext. And here's this moment where you have to read whatever you're, how you're putting it together onto his face, the sort of flatness, sort of kind of intense Kubrick stare. But uh-huh. those zooms in the the the, uh, the cab, I was just like, I remember before I watched it, I was very excited to see those again. And I remember being disappointed because he kept. It kept yeah, showing he cut exactly. away with the authorial intent and shows you what he's thinking. What did yeah. you think? Speaking of authorial intent, what did you think? One shot that really was cool to me was the um, 
shot when he came back to the um, apartment, grabbed a beer from the fridge, and Nicole Kidman was teaching her daughter math problems, and there was a zoom in on both of them. And it was such an innocuous zoom on both sides besides the like uh, the, the audio overlaying with the dream, her describing the dream. Is that the, is that the same cheap level of what's happening in the cab or does that work? Uh, well, I think that's better than cutting away to the the other thing. I think he's it, the zoom is nice because he's kind of seeing them. Well, there's also the different. smile too. There's yeah. like the fact that like they're smiling at each other while he's yeah. showing what he's actually thinking. Yeah, no, I, I actually very much like that moment because it kind of it doesn't really it does tell you what he's thinking about, and they do cut away, but the sort of like it still works uh, on uh, different levels. It still works on different level, and uh. uh uh, the sort of layering of it, you're trying to figure out what they're both are, are, are thinking. I, and also if there's, uh, I am a huge fan of zooms, like an, in, like just the biggest maybe fan of zooms. I think they're like very uniquely cinematic in a way and you can use them terribly. Are right? you an Altman fan? Uh, I haven't seen so much Altman that I could say I'm a fan. Oh, remind. But... You're going to be on for some more Altman episodes, but I'm going to make you watch and, some Altman and, movies. And, yeah, and, and yeah. Remind, I have a big Altman library we're going to share when we hang out soon. Don't okay. guys live yeah, close yeah. to each other. Maybe that, that, that'll be the, the, uh, um, the impetus. But like, I just I just love because it feels so uniquely cinematic. Um, I'm sure there's analogs and other things, but just the sort of the you know the field of view warping part of it. And you know, and it's not like every moment has to be a zoom, but when it's like just kind of used right, it really when it gives me right. goosebumps. Yeah, it, it gives me goosebumps. God bless the seventies. Uh, I guess the wind down. Do you guys have any final thoughts? I uh, I think I covered most of what I wanted to say. I mean, I I, I was yeah, my notes were to talk about the naked women, uh, the New York that this film is not, and then sort of the offhanded feel of it when it's definitely a constructed deeply felt movie um i guess my thing is in the kubrick films i i i'm now wondering if this is my favorite one of his movies like i i honestly that's really before we rewatch this where was this at um he's just like who i think things shift for me a little bit i always love paths of glory i've always liked 2001 i've always liked clockwork orange i've liked the shining so it's some shuffling of those movies um but I now feel like the things we talked about earlier about the emotional content in the movie, about it feeling looser and yet still being constructed. Um, I don't know. If you asked me to watch any one of those movies tonight, like at 10 p.m. L.A. time, I think I'd probably pick Eyes Wide Shut, um, <laughs> even though I just watched it on two nights ago. So I, I was uh, – I don't know. There's, there's a lot about Kubrick that I, do, I, don't, I don't know, and that's a shame. It's obviously lovely to hear you talk about him because um, – it's similar to you and I talk about Mike Lee. It's like, I feel like there's so many who I know, but I don't know really everything about them. And Kubrick is so rich, but, uh, yeah. Well, Kubrick's but, also just so poured over and there's people like, there's some people we'd worked with and myself who are just obsessive about every fucking story available about him. And, and I mean, there's, there's probably versions of it where it's, they're not worth pouring over some of these stories, but it, it, and like I don't have yeah exactly I don't have room in my brain for these like I saw Room Two Thirty Seven I thought it was so interesting but I was like I can't engage with The Shining like I have to live a life <laughs> you know well, well there's also uh, just the vibe of like there, it's one thing to th- think of him as the omnipotent perfectionist but let's be fucking realistic with each other about this you know yeah 
but but he's a good enough filmmaker that that question exists. And so when you watch as a shot, and you're like, wow, that shot that reverse doesn't match the other one. Is that an intentional thing, or is that just like an off day, or do they shoot just, that two hundred days or apart? more? He le- he leaves it in line. on purpose. Yeah, jumping yeah. The, he jumps the line a number of times in this movie. Is that am I just because it's Kubrick and not like some college kid? Am I giving it a pass? Um, but I, I really, I, I like in a very real way. I, I think this is my my right now my favorite one of his films, and um, I'll say it's the last one I watched. So I, I watched this a few years ago. I had not seen a Kubrick movie in a couple of years. I rewatched this uh, to talk about tonight, and I, it stuck with me. So um, yeah, I, I, I that's it. I loved it. I always think of Kubrick favorites in terms of Cohen favorites. And I think there's a few other filmmakers I'm probably blanking on where it's just like, it literally is the last movie you watch. It's going to be your favorite. Um, Raymond, did you have any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, one, one of the, I, I feel very is, uh, similar to Kyle. Um, I kind of, not, I didn't think it was one of the lesser ones, but it was kind of just the ones that like, Oh yeah. If uh, uh, it's a Kubrick movie, uh, it's good. I'll watch it. But then watching it this time, was by far my best viewing and I, I don't know where I would place it but it probably is in like the the top of them for me and I think the part of it was the sort of emotional content of it and uh, 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 this just a sort of like I don't know it, it it really felt kind of human and I was actually very surprised by how I thought it it, it, it kind of had a positive message at the uh, like more than like you seem to be indicating that that's that was your interpretation of it yeah i think it was like i mean i think in the basis way in the end it's like uh uh just saying like yeah relationships are hard you got to make it work it's just like (laughs) but 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 that's like the basis way you know but uh uh, no it's like yeah it's like you know you you, uh uh there's uh uh but 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 it just kind of like the dropping of the facade and kind of like intimacy that was involved in that i think was missing and like but you but but the same thing you said kyle it's still very much a kubrick movie like it, you you see things in it and, you're, and you'll know like if you had never seen this movie and watch all of other kubrick's movies i think you would instantly be able to tell after you watch it that it was him but uh oh definitely definitely yeah, yeah. and and one other thing that i think also kind of makes it more interesting to me is like i didn't know before i watched it i heard that he uh, um wanted to make this since he was a a, a kid or not kid, but younger. And like, it's something that's maybe been ruminating in his mind. And I, uh, uh, and then the last movie he makes is, has this sort of positive feeling to me is like it, that is like a very nice sort of outside the movie kind of, uh, uh, experience for me. It made me think of like, you know, like Beethoven wanted to make, uh, for the ninth symphony ode to joy since he was a kid or since he was very young. And he was known to be like this curmudgeon as at an end. But the Ninth Symphony's message is about unity and all people are, you know, like together. And like this, it's not to that level, but that sort of like kind of arc that I can not very uh, um, accurately, but kind of put onto Kubrick. It it makes me like the movie more. I don't know why, but no. Okay, I see that. My last point I want to make when I saw this movie, I my gateway to a lot of film um, film uh, obsession, Kubrick was a big part of it. He was my big filmmaker in high school. In in my freshman year, I wrote, I tried to find it for tonight, but I couldn't. Um, I wrote uh, my English term paper on Kubrick 
And I went so far over the page limit because I had so much to write about it that I got an F on it and had to rewrite <laughs> it based on a completely different writer. I ended up writing on Alan Moore, who, by the way, his uh, book Lost Girls with his wife, Melinda Gebby, is a much better example of making artistic porn. Um, but anyway, um, one, but the thing is that when I had to do the class presentation, one of the first things I ever edited that I thought was awesome and did get a good effect was I edited a Kubrick montage. And it was funny cause I started editing on VCR to VCR and, um, I literally just, I, what happened was it went so long that I ended up just using the intro to for <laughs> class, but it still had some cool shots. It had like the shot of, um, Oh, what it had the full the shot in Full Metal Jacket where uh, they're all doing the push-ups while Private Pile is eating the donut. Um, I think it all built it, it was all done under the song of "We'll Meet Again" and ended with the nuclear explosions. And one of the things over the years is I've watched Kubrick. I don't know if it's a commentary on him or what I thought as a teenager, where like it was a very superficial idea of like human nature being negative, and. It's interesting to hear your interpretation of that, Raymond, just because, like, I think I agree with you. And I think there's more dimensions to Kubrick because everyone who watches Kubrick every time without fail, from the lowliest film person seen for the first time to Scorsese to Spielberg, all these people watching always say every time we watch it, we get a new dimension. And I think your interpretation is right. There's, or at the very least, something more to watch for next time I watch it. There's something more positive in his movies. I mean... There is the Spielberg interpretation, which I mentioned earlier on Paths of Glory. Like, the, his his wife singing a song to these soldiers is the ultimate thing to go out on. Yeah, and that one's more very traditionally sort of emotional and positive. And I actually was curious. You said Paths of Glory is usually up there. How much of like uh, is it partially because of the way it ends, or is it just in general like? Kyle's it's generally just because you can isolate it as the one time where like he has a little bit of sentimentality or like a little just like relenting of like without being funny about something because a lot of the, the way he released tension is 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 humor and so yeah I, I don't know there's it's Kubrick like he still to this day forty years into watching movies and like he's still my favorite man he's still my favorite <laughs> he was very much one of my early kind of bringing me into movies thing and through clockwork orange. So yeah, although yeah, I, I, I've definitely revisited him a lot less than I probably should. So we'll have you guys back on for the AI and clockwork orange episode too. So, um, and, and yeah, don't forget yeah, the, the uh, bicentennial, bicentennial. Bi- okay. Excuse one. me. The it, AI bicentennial yeah. man episode. It's not AI only. We have to address both turn of the century robot movies, Chris Columbus, yeah. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. We're, we're there. <laughs> I want to think you guys both are being on this. You guys are obviously going to come back, so whatever. I don't have to bug you about it. You guys will be back. <laughs> yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah it great. really it's felt good. like one of the days of Dog and Duck or something. That's the whole point, man. That's the whole point. Um, thank you both for being on the podcast. Um, cool. Great. Thanks, Shane. Appreciate it. That's all.